Good afternoon. This is Timmy Bendis. We're doing stuff, things in the news. This week we have Joseph Telgan and Max Mihalich. Joe is the um, GPSA uh, SS liaison to the ASU Dub Senate, and Max is an ASU Dub Senator. Good evening, guys. Afternoon, I suppose. Hello, Timmy. Thanks for having us. Yeah, exactly what Joe just said. <laughs> All right. Um, this afternoon we're going to be talking about three things, unless we get sidetracked, which, you know, is more than likely. Um, so we're going to be talking about Move Seattle, which just passed in the local elections last Tuesday. We're going to be talking about the Keystone Pipeline through Canada and through um, Nebraska. And we're going to be talking about um, what's going on at the University of Missouri and a little bit about what's going on at Yale, which is particularly interesting. Um, but first, we're going to start out with um, Move Seattle. So Move Seattle is this... Um, it's it's this levy that is essentially this tax that gives a lot of money towards spending on transportation, spending on public transit and um, giving money towards things that we really need, um, especially in Seattle, since everyone knows what congestion looks like. Um, but the very first thing they're concentrating on is uh, pavement and crosswalks at schools. That's the first thing they're working on because it's it's actually quite unsafe for students to sort of walk to and from school. Um, Joe, do you have something like any insight on Move Seattle that we could? Well, yeah, most of what I have been looking at with respect to it, as the microphone is adjusted closer to my face, uh, most of what I've been looking at is just sort of statements in favor and in opposition. And, you know, as as an English graduate student, um, I spend a lot of time looking at the way that different people use language uh, in supporting their positions. And the main thing I notice is just the way that both sides have been using numbers for this one. Um, the people in favor, and I, I will add that I'm completely in favor of everything that moves Seattle seems to be about. Not only does it seem like stuff that I personally agree with, but I think it's very much in keeping with sort of what our town, what our city is all about. Um, you know, in terms of progress and environmentally friendly pro moves and, of course, you know, our community is improving. Uh, what cracks me up is I've seen a lot of opposition focusing on how, you know, it's a 55% increase over the last levy and it's an almost $1 billion plan and really throwing around a bunch of numbers that when looked at by those in favor, they'll just say things like, you know, it's actually $12 more per month, you know, and that kind of thing. So one thing I find fascinating is the way that the two sides are kind of using different numbers um, in order to accentuate different points. So, so Joe, we're talking about this sort of thing, and uh, one of the criticisms that people have um, sort of gone against to move Seattle is that there isn't a lot of accountability for the um, for the levy. Someone could theoretically say, oh, listen, we're going to be doing uh, congestion, help against congestion, and then spend all of the money on Bertha, which Bertha isn't the most popular um, thing anywhere outside of downtown, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, what are we what are we looking at here? We're thinking about Move Seattle as is it going to be funding Sound Transit as well? Is it going to be funding some of the Link, or is it more funding local transit and um, bike lanes? Well, I can speak generally that in looking at this, when I was considering whether to vote in favor of it or not, um, I found the breakdown of what was being looked at, I'm being instructed to keep my mouth closer to the mic. Um, I, when I looked at the breakdown of the details of the levy, I felt like there was a lot of specificity. I don't know if I think that the accountability is everything that it could be necessarily, but when I looked at the opposition, it was always related to one very specific argument, which was the... Uh, the increases in taxation and looking at the language of those particular increases, I actually found a lot of them to be kind of unsatisfying. Um, it, to me, I, I look at uh, I'm, I'm just looking at my voter guide and I'm, I'm looking at all of the breakdowns by bullet point and uh, the detail is is almost staggering. Um, the opposition argues that it's thrown together, which I think is a very hard position to support. So, Max, you, you come from uh, mostly in in Idaho. in in Idaho. Uh, <laughs> how, how do you how do you feel about some of this um, transportation that we're getting here in Seattle? Like, we obviously have a higher tax bracket, or we we collect more in taxes here, and we have a higher population than in. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, like like Timmy just said, I, I come from Sun Valley, Idaho, which is. Uh, 
well, to say the least, very different from Seattle. And I haven't had the chance particularly to experience Seattle in its fullest, so I can't say I really um, identify with a lot of the problems that uh, Move Seattle is attempting to address. However, just speaking solely to how important I think infrastructure is to a city, much less or much more a town, um, safety is certainly a key concern when it comes down to uh, looking at things like sidewalks and pavement, because if, I don't know, let's just throw out there, the road has a giant pothole and a car flips on over to a sidewalk and we're looking at several casualties. And that could have easily been fixed with more money being found and funneled into replacing the infrastructure. So when I look at just move Seattle, I just think that, well, congestion certainly something that people want to work towards uh, lightening. But also, I, I, I hope that Move Seattle was meant to help keep the people of Seattle safer. So, so we're also thinking about this concept of improving the infrastructure in Seattle. Now, that infra- infrastructure seems like this, um, it, it's a bipartisan concept. We, as a legislative issue, it's a, in our, in Olympia at least, we think of this issue as it, it goes both, it goes both on the Republican camp and a Democratic camp. I, improving public transportation is probably one of the, the Democrat, uh, liberal ideals where we're sort of thinking about how to help people get to their jobs without necessarily having the money to spend on a car and uh, wasting money on these roads. Do you think that there would be much criticism from uh, the Republican camp if we were trying to expand public transportation outside of Seattle? And uh, why is it that sometimes when we have a pure Republican system like they did in Kansas recently, um, they elected a Kansas uh, in a Republican completely like no taxes, no spending sort of thing in Kansas. And it fails so spectacularly that the people first notice the issues with the infrastructure. Joe? Well, yeah, I think I'll begin with that last point. I don't know anything about Kansas's uh, legislative uh, construction, but I can definitely say that the idea of a categorical refusal of taxation or new taxation even, uh, it, it simply strikes me as counterintuitive to the basic idea that taxes can be used to produce an improvement in civilization. Uh, I, I believe uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Republican said something to the effect of, uh, I like taxes, with them I buy civilization. And I think that the idea of an outright comprehensive rejection of taxation can possibly lead to uh, the most advanced and most productive society is is just contrary to basic common sense. Um, in the case of Seattle, again, I must stress that we are a very different community with a very different sort of ethos. And a very different understanding of what is and isn't right. And to me here, um, arguing um, with any sort of a starting point that, you know, new taxation is an inherent negative is so contrary to what this city stands for. Um, that That's what I would have to offer there. Yeah, another another sort of thing that we um, came up again no, on this city agenda is something by Tim Iman, I think it is. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, that... That Seattle, without a, without fail, has managed to increase their taxes yet one more time, increase the levy to to fund this transportation. And he he went to the state legislature and he said that this is completely inappropriate. We're not allowed to be spending increasing taxes so easily, and that just because we're all liberals doesn't mean we should be able to increase the sales tax, increase uh, place a bag tax. So it's. Mm, we we end up with this sort of like we have this group of people that don't want to be taxed that feel that taxation is bad and that the sales tax is bad but we also have this group of people that feel that we should be taxed more that it helps increase the inequality or decrease the inequality in our system and then it, overall it helps uh, it helps the greater good it helps the community as a whole grow stronger rather than reappropriating all the money for the rich and keeping it uh, out of the hands of the poor, like we see in some of the southern states, yes? Yeah, while I agree with that, that sentiment, I just I really want to stress that uh, you got to make sure, you know, where all the tax dollars are going. And if you if you tax everyone, you know, a ton of their money, and then it goes into funding something just non-essential, I, I can't really put a finger on. Bertha. What is it? 
Okay, let's say, let's say Bertha. Let's say that's not essential. And we have a lot of people saying, well, okay, there goes, I don't know, let's say 20% or 30% of my year's income just for something that I'm never going to use. And how do you think the people are going to respond to that, whether they be liberal, Republican, or anything like that? Um, so I think that taxation in itself is the bad thing. Of course, it's good. That's how we're even able to put together programs that assist people to move up and out of tax brackets that are low. And so uh, just looking looking forward, I think that uh, certainly uh, taxation in itself is a good thing. And I can't particularly agree with what was going on uh, in Kansas, as you said, with the flat out no taxing. That just seems foolish. And um, you're left with uh, <laughs> with a city that that is just going to consume itself. Well, to provide some background, Kansas, uh, a deeply Republican state, uh, ended up almost voting for a Democrat because such such were the colossal failures of the non-taxation, non-infrastructure spending. Um, we're going to take a short break. Make sure you check out our bloggers on rainydog.org. They're, they We've got a whole bunch of new ones, so they post a blog every co- couple days or so, so you should have a bit of fun on that. But we're going to be back in a couple minutes, and I think I've figured out how to do this now, so we'll see if it works. <laughs> Hey guys. Hey guys, we're back. We're going to start talking about the Keystone XL pipeline. Now for some background information, last week, and it was just after our last show, President Obama rejected the Keystone pipeline decision, rejected the, um, the, the plan to build a larger pipeline from this, uh, this, this small town in uh, Canada down to essentially through Nebraska and down through um, to the refineries in Texas. Now, the the major issue is there's there's been a lot of noise on on the right, the Republican side of uh, affairs that say that he he did it more as a political move rather than an environmental move. And he was weighing the political pros and cons. And there wasn't that much of an environmental issue. Now, the issue is here. That there was um, this Keystone pipeline would event um, would encourage essentially the Canadian oil producers to dig through these tar sands, which is a very, very environmentally unfriendly process. And it would encourage them to find crude in this hard to get area to to ship it down to Texas and get it refined. So 
Well, we're ending up his here. Why would the right reject such a why? Why did Obama have to make this decision? First of all, Joe, hmm. I, I would say there's a whole bunch of reasons, as I understand them, why Obama would do it. Uh, I would agree with the notion that it was partly politically motivated. Uh, as I understand it, Obama is getting ready to head to this international conference on climate change and uh, in Paris and have this sort of giant comprehensive conversation. Um, and in a lot of ways, there was a real worry that not taking a stand on this would kind of undercut a lot of what he's trying to do on an international level. And I do know that, you know, Democrats like to paint this one at least partly as a distraction uh, for more serious work that could be done on climate change. I do think that there were legitimate concerns with how many jobs it would actually create. Obama's position was it would not create a whole lot of jobs. And also questions of dependency on fossil fuels and whether we would be reinforcing um, those issues related to energy dependency that we're trying to get away from. Um, one point of frustration for me, Timmy, is in, in trying to answer this question, I, as most Americans, even those of us who try to follow politics as much as possible, really didn't get very good information on this one. Uh, may, may I just uh, wrap up my one point here? Um this turned into um, an example of how both politicians and the media like to turn everything into this two-sided war um, on the issues where it, it really turns into a thing where everybody's claiming that everybody else isn't acting in good faith. And that's all we get. Um, and it's very, very hard to really dig into an issue and be an informed citizen. Yeah, that's actually kind of what Keystone was criticized with this quarter. Um, can we we ended up with this sort of idea that Obama was for years and years actually they were they were pondering over this decision whether or not to approve the um, the agenda and or whether or not to approve this sort of this sort of contract to approve the building of Keystone. But in the meantime, several other pipelines have been built. We had Shell try to drill up in the Arctic. So it may like it. Yes, that was eventually rejected, but it may not just be a political move. It may have been a distraction towards looking at other things and saying, hey, we built all of these pipelines. Why is this one so different than the rest of them? And uh, you, you still come upon that environmental issue. This would have been an environmental, essentially an environmental catastrophe um, because it, he's he's pulling up fossil fuels from this very, very difficult to drill land very far north. And yes, Canada can still drill these lands. Uh, the Canadian government and the Canadian oil companies can still drill these lands, but it makes it so much more difficult and so much more expensive to move this oil that especially at the price of oil right now, which is somewhere around 40 or $50 a barrel, which is minuscule compared to what it was when they first started planning this, um, it, it makes it unsustainable to, to drill at, at, simply at these prices. So <clears throat> we also end up with Obama um, and a new Canadian government. Justin Trudeau is everyone's new favorite simply because, well, he's attractive. That's sort of how politics works, apparently. Um, but uh, he he's far less a proponent of Keystone XL than, than Stephen Harper was. And he's far more a proponent for he's – a, he's, a, he's a lot more to the left. He's a lot more of a liberal. His recent cabinet uh, drew quite a bit of uh, fervor around social media the other week when it was literally as diverse as you could possibly imagine. There was there was 50 percent women and 50 percent men. And when quizzed on the question, he's Trudeau said, because it's 2015. This is a guy that maybe oil. Yes, it's a huge part of the Canadian economy, but he realizes that the environment is also very important to our longstanding to 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 our survival as a as the human race. So. Perhaps Obama was simply in a friendly situation where, yes, we're providing more oil than we were in the past. Uh, yes, with fracking, especially in Oklahoma. Um, yes, where the price of oil has dropped quite drastically. Uh, perhaps now's not the best time to build this pipeline. But do we see an issue like this uh, resurfacing later in the future? Is it possible? Um, you know, that was the question I was going to bring up and just from the wording of all your statements saying that is it possible for this uh, to resurface later uh, in the upcoming years? 
um, especially with, with the upcoming elections for U.S. president, uh, if a Republican candidate comes in. I'm, I have no doubt that this will resurface uh, because one of the main arguments that I heard for in uh, for the Keystone Pipeline from the right was that it would create thousands of jobs for both Americans and Canadians. And looking at the risks and kind of weighing them out, I kind of felt that that argument didn't really have as much weight as if what happens if something goes wrong? Because it's fine and dandy to say that nothing will go wrong, but you have to plan for the things that do happen. And if uh, the pipeline breaks somewhere along the lines of anywhere near a city or even within the tar sands itself, then you're looking at so much money and damages that it would just immediately outweigh any of the jobs that are created. And I just don't think that's a risk that either side should be willing to take at the current time and with the current level of technology we have. This is this is also pretty close to when Obama recently uh, decided not to renew or the Obama administration recently decided not to renew any drilling up in Alaska or the Arctic Circle. It's it's not that our technology can't accommodate this drilling up in the Arctic Circle. Our technology most certainly can. We Shell could probably drill and completely empty that oil field down there or up there. But the problem is, what if anything goes wrong? These oil fields are so far to the north that if there's any sort of a spill, even to the smallest scale, like uh, the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago, when when the Deepwater Horizon burst and exploded. Uh, if anything, even remotely close to that situation happened up in Alaska, it would be an environmental disaster that no one would ever hear the end of. It would be oil would spread all the way even past Seattle. That's that's the scale of an environmental disaster what we were looking destroy at. Destroy the economies for fishing and even the livelihoods, especially of those people in Alaska. And I can't, I can't support something that can um, potentially destroy people's lives. Exactly. And is this perhaps, are we looking at a more renewable energy source? We've, we've found, we've seen our, um, our neighbors in France or our partners in France and Germany are building a more sustainable economy. Uh, Germany has Germany, which is famously rich in coal and iron in the Rhine Rhineland, uh, they they have I think it's like 20 25 percent renewable energy and France has been building nuclear power plants and even though they're sort of going away from that they've been building these nuclear power plants for a very long time are we at that point in history where we can sort of wean ourselves off wean ourselves off from fossil fuels um, personally I think it's all up to this upcoming generation and determining you know how how much effort do they want to put into creating new technologies that certainly help wean us off from fossil fuels, petroleums, um, altogether. And I think that uh, certainly it falls upon myself and my generation, the next generation, next year after that, to certainly work towards that because I think it's a definitely a laudable goal. Yeah. I, I would add that, you know, being being of the generation above Max's, um, I would, uh, Max was kind enough to pat me on the back after saying that. Um he, to me, I think one of my roles in this situation is to point out that I notice there's so much division practice that goes on with our language whenever we talk about something like Keystone. It's always, you know, do we make an environmental decision or do we make an employment economic decision? Do we, you know, look at new types of fuels? Or I think one of the problems that we're facing and one of the things maybe I can point out a little bit, this is kind of what I try to do in my work, is, you know, Let's not look at things as like when I started out by mentioning Obama had political motives. I didn't mean that uh, in, in a condemnatory way at all. I guess what I think of it is every time I'm reading about Keystone, it's always the claims are always based upon, oh, that was a political decision or a rhetorical decision as opposed to a practical decision or a realistic decision. I think it would be probably best if we're going to come to any kind of nuanced understanding of the world and the environment and the economy going forward, if we understand that all of these things are interdependent and that like treating things with such an either or mentality, you know, that says environmental protection is contrary to economic development, you know, and big energy and environmental protectionists have to be on opposite sides of the fence, I think there's always going to be a limiting aspect to that kind of conversation. And I think our politicians and our media are kind of addicted to it. 
Yeah, we're, we're finding that our media is quite addicted to it, especially with these recent debates. Um, the Republicans recently accused the mainstream media of getting them to go at each other as opposed to sort of chasing the issues. Um, and the Democratic media, it, it was it was famously um, pro-Hillary, which is fine. You're allowed to be pro-Hillary. But the CNN, who hosted the debate, is also Hillary's one, one of Hillary's big – or Time Warner, the parent company of CNN – um, who hosted the Democratic debate is also one of Hillary's biggest donors. So you end up with this media that, instead of chasing issues, gets these politicians to take pot shots at each other to, to sort of yeah, increase ratings. We're, good we're, numbers, right? That's it's exactly why. it's fun to watch, right? Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot a little bit to British Columbia, which um, a few years ago they they did a carbon tax and they did or no they did a subsidy on renewable energy, one on uh, like solar and wind power, and now the, on these sorts of industries, as opposed to oil. Now, British Columbia is part of Canada. Um, uh, we we end up with this sort of idea. After a few years, it became much cheaper to produce. After a few years of producing solar panels, after a few years of making uh, uh, m- making it cheaper for the public to get energy from renewable sources. We actually found that the price eventually went down as more people were buying this, as more people were using renewable energy sources, it actually became easier to produce, which is something we find in um, in basic economics. It's a critical – once you reach a critical mass, it becomes much easier to produce something. So this idea that after – even within a few years – British Columbia actually is mostly on renewable energy right now as opposed to oil. They they have transformed their economy in such a way that the carbon tax financed their switch to renewable energy and made the region better as a whole instead of fixating on this dying industry of fossil fuels, instead of fixating on this industry which is so based in regions of the world that really aren't uh, sustainable, uh, British Columbia has you know, turned the other way and said, listen, we don't really need oil. We can do things without it. So we, we find that our biggest trading partner, Canada, uh, actually has provinces that are sort of weaning themselves off this giant source of their trade and selling it to us. At what point do we as a country look at that and say, listen, Taxes sound bad. A carbon tax sounds bad. It sounds evil. It sounds nasty. But if we look at it and say within 10 years we can use this carbon tax to finance subsidies on renewable energy, we can wean ourselves off this carbon or these carbon offsets that sort of um, that sort of provide negative externalities to our to our community, to our environment. I kind of just want to point out like what, what's uh, what's one of the bigger differences between British Columbia and let's say America? You know, they live extremely close to all the environmental impacts that uh, withdrawing petroleum and fossil fuels have on their environment. And so they basically live it. And so I feel as though the mentality of the people in British Columbia is certainly much more oriented towards moving away from it because they know the impact firsthand. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to implement such things as the carbon tax in America. because America is so widespread that not everyone knows exactly the impact that those actions have. Arguably, arguably, you could say that it's not simply British Columbia. You could say that British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest, or at least Washington State, have these parallels that we experience, which is why we saw such widespread protests when Shell came to Seattle. We experience this firsthand. We can be the first in the country to we, – we can be the first in the country to – sort of implement these decisions, but uh, no one likes hearing about new taxes. No one likes voting for someone that says, new taxes, charge us more. Well, well, hang on. I thought, uh, you know, Max said that he, you know, felt that taxes were a good thing. And I I definitely would agree in in spirit with the idea that maybe getting to the broader point and going back to what you were saying before, Timmy, I think one thing we really, really need in order to have environmental arguments that are going to work is an anticipation of the fact that people want to understand the practical benefits of environmental arguments. People want to hear something outside of a mere protectionist, you know, think about our grandchildren's sort of argument. That's not to say that those arguments aren't great. It's just to say that a component of an argument toward new forms of energy development that an argument in favor of sustaining the earth 
has to include a consideration of people who are going to be coming at it from the perspective of, well, what about jobs? What about the economy, etc.? If you can simply get to a point where you can anticipate what people are going to want to hear and add those things into what you're saying, as you've just done very nicely by illustrating how economically viable what British Columbia did was, if we can simply get to that place in this country, we can get past this place where everything is about um, setting up a divide. Um, and, and Max, you know, made the brilliant point before that, you know, that's really good for ratings. Divides are really good for ratings. Um, they also happen to be really, really crappy for getting things done, um, in this country, as far as making policies that actually work for everybody. We're, we're going to come back real quick. We're going to talk about the university of Missouri and a little bit about Yale university. They got into some trouble over Halloween. So we're going to, you know, sort of ride on their misfortunes, I suppose. But give us a few seconds. Um, make sure you check us out on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash rainy dog. And this show is facebook.com. And then you search stuff, things in the news. We'll post all the updates there and our guests. And maybe eventually we'll do profiles on our guests. I don't know how mean I'm feeling right now. Um, but uh, and if you want to join us, make sure you go on rainydog.org and hit volunteers. We are always looking for new volunteers at this station. So make sure you hit that. If you have an iPad or an iPod, or an iPhone. I don't know how many people have iPods anymore, but um, make sure you look us up on rainydog.org. Our site is completely mobile-friendly, so it should be a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back. We'll see you soon. We're back. We're going to talk about the University of Missouri and Yale. Now, for once, my two guests are far better prepared on this than me. So uh, it's going to be a bit of fun. Um, the University of Missouri and Yale got into a little bit of trouble. We're going to start with the University of Missouri. Um, so from what I gathered, there was a student down in the University of Missouri who upset with a racial undertones, a racial overtones actually happening on his campus at the University of Missouri, um, went on a hunger strike. And this was this wasn't as widespread as people. He he went on a hunger strike and was on a hunger strike for quite a few oh, few days as well. Um, but it wasn't as um, widespread until the University of Missouri football team actually got in on, uh, heard about it, and refused to play their next game, which was against BYU, if I'm not mistaken. Not quite, not quite sure who they're going to play, but just know that if they didn't play, uh, the college would end up paying a million dollars. Yeah, it, for use of the stadium. There was a, there was a significant there was a significant cost to the. Um, University and and they demanded that the president resign. Now, first, we're going to go with Joe because that's how we've been doing things so far. Oh, sure. Yeah, I I first would just like to state, I, I, leading up to the hunger strike, of course, we had um, an incident involving um, some students uh, making a racially motivated. I suppose there's no way this couldn't be racially motivated uh, swastika. Uh, out of feces, uh, that is a swastika-shaped uh, container of feces. And I, I believe the hunger strike happened in large part because the president's reaction to this and way of dealing with it was seen as um, tentative and tepid. 
uh, to which I would respond that any time when you're dealing with the aftermath of Ferguson, any time you're dealing with this particular community, um, any response from administration that could be described as tepid is just completely unacceptable. Um, I can understand where the student who had the hunger strike uh, was coming from. His statement was something to the effect of he felt like he was already in an environment which was basically inhospitable to his existence at the University of Missouri and therefore went ahead and did the hunger strike, which I think is an incredibly commendable and uh, principled action. Um, so, so, yes, I, I want to be very clear. The, you know, movement on part of the football players, and as Max pointed out, did you say that it was a million dollars would have been forfeited immediately just mm -hmm. as a penalty? As a cancellation fee. for As a cancellation fee. Yeah, I, I think the most commendable part of this is that the university's African-American community, and to, to a lesser extent, its, its allies, uh, really came together and realized, you know, we've really got to go after people's wallets if we're going to affect change here. And they did it, and uh, to all of that, I have nothing but uh, praise. Um, I'll let Max jump in. All right. So I'd like to preface this with, uh, aside from the poop swastika, and I <laughs> hate to phrase it like that, but that's what it was. It was drawn on, on a dormitory wall, uh, but this wasn't the only instance that was racially charged. There were three other ones, uh, two of which were anecdotal but nonetheless, uh, certainly speak to something going on at the campus. Uh, the second one was also anti-Semitic in nature. Uh, it was uh, basically anti-Semitic things written on, again, I believe, a, a dormitory wall. And the other two instances were uh, young black men uh, simply being, you know, uh, just going about their days, uh, the first one, he was alone, and a group of white men, as he described them in a, in a, in a white pickup truck, uh, pulled up and started berating him with racial epithets such as the N-word. And uh, he, he felt as though um, you know, he, he wasn't safe, he wasn't welcome. And then there was also a group of, I believe, I don't quote me, but it's the uh, Legion of Black, yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, scholars, something like that. And uh, something similar happened. A drunk, as they described, white person came up and called them the N-words. And so while it's not to say that those instances were very bad, I just want to point out that two of those four were just random events. And I'm not sure if you can immediately point to them being a huge racial problem. Um, however, I do think that be, I, I, am a, I am a person of color. I think that you definitely need to take these instances seriously. However, I also not that know that administrations are very limited in what they're able to do. And I actually heard um, that within the instances of uh, the anti-Semitic posts and the feces, within a couple days, the administration already issued letters denouncing what had happened. And I think as a start, uh, the president certainly has a thin line to walk in order to work with everyone he's supposed to represent, which is not only people of color, it's also white people. So in order to create a safe campus, obviously the first step that needs to be taken is saying that we don't want this on our campus. And I think he, he did that. However, the, the other two ones, which were the, the young black men being called the N-word, um, there's not much you can do about that. What, what do they require the president to do? They've, they've already issued statements saying that um, racism is intolerable. We can't accept this on our campus. And the president came out within those instances after the hunger strike happened um, saying, I stand with you 100 percent. This campus has no place for racism, bias, intolerance and things of the like. But they still called for his resignation, even though he's already take an action to the extent that he can. Uh, well, I would I would disagree with that to some extent. And I, the comparison I would draw would be to the incident in the at the University of Oklahoma um, in which you had the two two white students on buses um, hurling racial epithets around and, you know, establishing a, a certain problem with their particular fraternity. And the university's president's response was so um, extreme in its opposition to it. 
Um, many educators, and I might even include myself in this group, could argue his response was imperfect simply because it was so um, extraordinarily strong. Um, it was it, basically the two students were um, instantly expelled, um, and the campus community got a very clear sense of this being an absolute red line. Um, I would agree, Max, that um, there is a question of, well, exactly how far should the president go? But I think if you examine the responses in the two cases, I I would doubt um, that a graduate student would feel the need to go on a hunger strike as a consequence of the Oklahoma administrative response. Um, because I felt that there, there was such an absolute condemnation that I I believe the community, if nothing else, could see that this was a a person who was taking it seriously, very seriously. And and before I examine uh, the person, the brave young man who went on a hunger strike, I want to, again, compare the two, uh, the Oklahoma chant video and these two uh, instances of... uh, racism on campus with the black men. Um, The biggest comparison is that the Oklahoma chant was caught on video and that's how action was able to be taken. But when I look at these two instances where these young men were um, just assaulted with words on campus and then they, the the perpetrators left, uh, there's a minimal amount of action that can be taken. And I would certainly try to take action. But again, I've, I've, I've thought, what could the, this president, this administration have done? Um, they, they did what they could. They've already denounced racism as it stands, but they can't, they can't chart chase after people that they don't even know were students at the campus. Because I'd like to point out, UM is in fact a private camp, or not a private, public campus, right? State. Both are. Yeah. yeah. So it's open to the public and anyone's allowed there. So when I look at it, I have to just draw the line saying, you know, it's, it's certainly a bad thing that it happened. I hate it. I hate it more than anything when someone throws my race in my face saying, you know, you're less of a human being because of your skin color. And it's just abhorrent. But I also have to think that, you know, he tried. He certainly tried. Okay. To which I I would say that, and again, I I hate to keep on going back to my area of academic specialization here. English. But but (laughs) as a rhetorician, more than anything else, I, I do believe that words constitute actions. Um, I do believe that the nature of a communicative gesture can amount to an action. And while I would agree, yes, certainly it wasn't possible for the students or whoever was responsible for some of those negative actions to be tracked down and disciplined. um, There was a very real opportunity. And I know for as well as I can know anything that the University of Missouri's problem was this guy didn't take it seriously enough. His public gestures, his comments, etc., were not strong enough. Now, we can debate whether or not that's a fair assessment of his public comments, but again, I draw the comparison to the situation at the University of Oklahoma. I feel like a complaint about the severity or um, extremity of that administrator's response would be, I would, I would have a serious problem with somebody arguing that that person didn't take it strongly enough. And it seems to me like that's the complaint. It's not a question of, the question was, how strong was the response? Was there a real sense of absolutely hell no, or was it more of a more tepid, more mild response? My impression, and I think this is important, is that there was a distinction between the two. All right. And I also want to point out that uh, this, this president was brought in, I believe, in 2012, uh, he came from the business finance industry, from a computing firm, I believe, and uh, he was brought in to cut costs from the campus. So I'm sure he made choices that certainly didn't make him popular, um, but that's not to say that's the reason why people went after him so vehemently. I, I want to draw attention past the initial um, actions that the president took, which I think were acceptable but not worth calling Brisbane resignation. But here's the point where I would say that he kind of needs to contemplate whether or not he is doing his job correctly, is there are, there are videos surfacing of confrontations between himself and his students where it seems as though he doesn't even seem willing to listen. And he wants, and he almost dismisses what they're saying as 
trivial and blames them for putting themselves in their own position. And while I may be right-leaning and I believe in um, working hard to get where you go, um, I do think that there are certainly instances in the world where people have a harder time because of their race, sex. And I think that those times are certainly uh, far from how the world should work. Joe, I'm going to cut you off. We're going to pivot to what's going on at Yale because that's a far more convoluted issue to something that's uh, uh, where where there hasn't been quite as much action. It's been going on for quite a time now. I missed it, it around November 5th is yeah, when it started. November 5th is when it started, you know, heating up. Um, so uh, Yale University, the one in New Haven, I don't know how many Yale universities there are, but um, uh, Yale University is a private university where – Every student lives on campus. There's no off-campus living. There's no, like, it's it's a dormitory housing. It's a little bit different than we have here. But um, they recently sent an email that was a little bit, it, it's the, they sent this, the email that we normally get here, a similar email that we normally get here um, on UW's campus about being uh, safe on Halloween and what kind of costumes. And we, we should consider our costumes, how they affect others. Max, do you want to? Oh, I was just going to explain, you know, how how everything was broken down. Uh, like Timmy just said, we got our they got their typical uh, don't wear offensive things, and then uh, w- the assistant master of Silliman College, one of the colleges on campus, uh, replied back with an email that uh, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it basically challenged um, the students themselves to. Uh, take it upon themselves to work through the issues that they figure out over Halloween. Um, so if if someone wants to dress up in a stereotypical um, Native American headdress that some might find offensive, it's up to the student to turn their cheek or engage them in conversation to tell them why that's an issue. And that was what sparked the biggest outcry uh, between these the, the master the assistant master of Silliman College and the students of Silliman College so so this this sort of outcry was that the students are now marching and saying that the president should resign but or at least the assistant master, the, the, the the headmaster of this dormitory uh, the Silliman College is where where students live um they're they're demanding that they resign but uh, what I'm getting a lot of information from is that the the master of Silliman College he's encouraging students to talk He's not necessarily saying he's not saying, hey, listen, you guys shouldn't there. There is no there's no red line. You're not allowed to that. He's saying that there is no costume that you're not, quote unquote, not allowed to wear. He's, however, saying that the community should band together and talk about these costumes and make sure that these issues are heard, that if you're dressed up like um, if you're dressed up as Kanye West, you shouldn't use this stereotypical costumes uh, that would stereotypically represent black people um now the problem is that it, it mm, the the people that are marching are the assistant master wants to talk about these issues he's offering them to talk but the people marching are completely demanding his res his his his, his resi- even his his wife who was the assistant master to step down <laughs> and if i may interject here um i think one of the the greatest points of this entire I want to say snap is uh, the master is taking it upon himself to meet with the students who are protesting to talk, talk it out and attempt to have civil discourse. And there have been multiple videos that display his attempts. And I think, you know, look from the outside looking in the way the students act is just nowhere near any sort of behavior that would promote civil discourse and progression. And I want to point out there's a specific one of this young lady. I'm not going to say her name because I can't remember it. But, but, that's relevant. Um, basically, she told the professor um, that his job wasn't to create an intellectual space in the college. Rather, to make a home for the students where they would feel safe and not threatened. And this is an academic institution. We we uh, that's like one of the core principles of an academic institution. You should talk to each other. You should learn. You shouldn't be constantly offended by these experiences. But obviously, you shouldn't you shouldn't demand a completely. Hmm. 
I, I need to jump in here. Yeah, of course. On, on this one. Um, I think the idea that, and I, again, I keep on coming back to this idea that, well, there's no, you know, separation between civil discourse and home or whatever, or at least it's not absolute. I, I absolutely agree that a university is a community that is designed to promote civil discourse and a place where intellectual discussions can happen. And it's better to have a conversation than not have a conversation. I absolutely agree with that. However, I also believe that there is appropriateness in saying, you know, um, white people a lot of the time, sometimes we just don't like being told not to do certain things. For example, if you're a white person and you're considering dressing up as Kanye West for Halloween, it's appropriate for anyone to tell you, you know, just don't do that. Um, don't, it's just, don't put the shoe polish it, on your face. It's just not, well, more to the point, it's just not a good idea. Um, you, you know, but, for, what, but, for one reason, because civil discourse and having a home and a place where students can feel safe to have positive dialogues depends upon students not being alienated because they feel like other people feel entitled to do whatever they want. So if you're if you're a student who is saying, excuse me, you can't infringe upon my right to dress up as Kanye West and wear blackface at a party or something like that. And that's an extreme example. Um, you are setting up a situation where civil discourse is blocked for certain people. Let me let me put this in a less extreme situation. I'm white. Um, let's say uh, hypothetically, um, I, I have like a five year old daughter and her favorite Disney princess is Tiana uh, from the Frog Princess. Uh, some some that's probably the title of the movie but that's that's completely realistic since i'm a complete jazz nerd and i uh, it's just like that movie is completely based in the history of jazz in louisiana at what point do you say that to your five-year-old daughter listen you can't dress up like tiana even though she's your absolute favorite even though your room is decorated with a crocodile playing the saxophone even though even though all these things are going on, you can't dress up like Tiana because you you it's not racially appropriate. However, I think that that's uh, let me let me go first. I'm sorry. I, I, I think that there is a problem with drawing a comparison between those two situations as very comparable because one is a question of adults and how we have to handle ourselves in a university community where we're supposed to be promoting both comfort and civil discourse and we're talking about adults who fully understand the consequences of what happens when a white person like myself yes you know i too you know try my best to be an ally when i can but let's face it you know very white guy you know puts myself in a position where i'm dressing up like a member of that washington football team um and something like when we're talking about a five-year-old, um, I, I think that there is a, a dissonance between those two situations. And I think we need to be honest when we're talking about Yale, we're talking about, you know, the question of how can we expect people to conduct themselves as adults? And I, going back to Max's point, I absolutely agree that civil discourse and an intellectual community is what we absolutely have to have at universities. I just think that part of the point of arguing against certain costume choices is we need to maintain that civil discourse in a comfortable community for everybody because otherwise it's not going to work. And that means that everybody needs to make sacrifices in their behavior. Everybody needs to make some choices about what is and isn't acceptable for them to do. Anyway, Max wanted to talk and I cut him off. So no, I was just going to say that the, the comparison Timmy brought up was actually addressed by some of the, the people of color on campus in one of their letters saying, that cosplaying a, a children's, you know, fantasy princess, whatever, is inherently different from, as they put it, uh, taking hold of someone's cultural identity and just for your own, own do whatever, which is the, the, the premise of cultural appropriation. As I know it. Yeah, I inherently disagree with um, these these sort of parties, these blackface parties that are going on. Uh, I recommend to anyone that's listening to watch Dear White People. It's actually quite a good movie. Um, it got middling reviews, but I enjoyed it. But um, I, I inherently disagree with these these um, these blackface parties or these themed parties, these uh, Kardashian West sort of things, and where people are forced to. Um, 
portray this stereo, this huge stereotype. Um, but I, mm, I'm not 100% sure where to draw the line, and I don't think anyone... I'm not sure it's a question that you can answer, but... Well, but what I'd say is you just did draw a line in the case of the blackface thing, right? You just said, I am absolutely opposed to that. Right to I'm, blackface I'm parties. Yes. I'm a white guy, you know, and I am opposed to that. Yes. To me, that is a line that like you can't cross. So the question becomes, and you're raising a great point, which is the question of what about when you're not sure? And I think the answer to that is you promote a civil discourse and you ask questions before you put the costume on, you know, as opposed to let's have a civil discourse about a costume choice that somebody made and is now standing behind adamantly. You know, to me, it's like. The, the red line, of course, the red line is you're always going to have a question of what is going too far. And I, I think the answer behind that is we have a good conversation about it. And you know what? That's why those you know, cultural appropriation, you know, complaints and, you know, it is a, a costume. It is a culture, not a costume and those sorts of things. They went up before Halloween. And the whole idea behind that was let's get ready for this. So that, you know, people won't be as alienated and ostracized so that we can have honest conversations about it afterwards. So, I mean, I, I think the answer becomes we do have to decide as a group. I mean, I and you and, and uh, you know, when we're talking with people of color and people who aren't of color, at, at the end of the day, what, what happens is that red line is constantly being drawn. And we, there are times when it's solid and there are times where it isn't. And Max is making a, a swimmy face uh, or a swimmy I, I, hand gesture. I, like I said earlier on, like this all took place during Halloween. Um, and I'm fairly certain that the response to the email took place before. So when you're talking about having the discussion before the fact, I'm, I'm fairly certain Yale, the circumstance of uh, these emails, fell within that. And the students, I would hope to believe at Yale University, are capable of understanding what exactly is offensive and what isn't um but to say that uh, they didn't have discussions on it to begin with is <laughs> well I, I i see what you're saying but then again i mean it's like hopefully they're able to understand what's offensive and what isn't but of course what's offensive to one person might be offensive i mean I, you know it, you know as as a jewish person you know the question of what is and isn't Offensive is, uh, uh, yeah. I, to, to me, it's no. I, I don't think offensiveness is easily determined. I think that's why you have the conversation. I, I guess I just wonder if the conversation should be, you know, don't start out offended. Instead, have the conversation. Sometimes people are going to get offended, and when they get offended, we have to have those moments where you know it's a crisis, you know, tourniqueting as opposed to um, let's have a civil discourse here. All right, Joe and Max, I'm going to cut you guys off. Uh, thank you for having us this week. We're going to be back same time next week, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Rainy Dog Radio. Following up next is Ben Holman with uh, the Rain City Wrap. Enjoy that for the next couple hours. But I'm going to put a cover of Thrift Shop by Broken Bass Ensemble, if I can get this right. From my necklace, used to take a brick, chop that bitch up in sections. That's decidedly not a cover of like it. No flexing, it's that whip work. Chop that, sell it out. We cop that on Wilmington and Brazil. When my Apollo with the top back, where my nigga top at? Remember them days before you and Rock brought Watts back? We was in Stevenson Village in front of crib, nigga, leaning like a top pack. Ordering Tommy Burgers with everything cocked back. My Glock fat, Nina Ross, Acon black. Bullets pop up out of nowhere like State Farm black.